0: So I've been hearing a stat, an alarming stat, for a couple of years or so now about the so-called nuns. Have you heard that? Not N-U-N-S, but N-O-N-E-S, the nuns. It's the younger generations, Gen Z and, and the millennials, a lot of you are uh, among these. the The stat is that as many as 36% of Gen Z youth and adults, as well as 34% of millennials, are equally likely to be non-Christians. Thankfully, according to a new study, this trend may be waning. So, praise the Lord for that. Gen Z members haven't decided whether scripture can help sustain American ideals, including democracy and justice, nor whether the Bible is truer than the Quran and the Book of Mormon. You zoom out, this article says, Gen Z's halting steps towards scripture are placed in the context of a meandering faith journey occurring in both their generation and the nation. It remains to be seen how much of this effect will be cultural or generational a matter of fact or a matter of time. (laughs) Y'all, the Bible is an incredible story. It's way better than Marvel comic stories, way better than Lord of the Rings, way better than Harry Potter, way better than Chronicles of Narnia. And, And we're in it, we're in this story. Dan Allender's book To Be Told is about God inviting you to be co-author of his story. He says, you are a story. You're not merely the possessor and teller of a number of stories. You are a well-written, intentional story that is authored by the greatest writer of all time. And even before time and after time, the weight of those words, if you believe them, even for brief snippets of time, can change the trajectory of your life. In fact, those words will call you to a level of co-authorship that is staggering in its scope and meaning. We're part of this incredible story. The Israelites are relearning that they are part of an incredible story. In the New Dictionary of Biblical Theology, the intro to Exodus says, Exodus is a story of the length to which God is willing to go to create for himself a people, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, through whom his plan of universal blessing promised to Abraham in Genesis 12, one three will one day be realized. Exodus one to 13, which we've seen through last week is the record of how the Lord came to his people in their distress. And then the second half of 13 through 18, which we're not going to look at, is the record of how the Lord went with his people on their pilgrimage. These chapters that we're looking in today cover roughly the first two months of freedom. So we're going to see here that Yahweh, the Lord, Adonai, is the covenant-keeping creator, the one true God who is our redeemer, our provider, our healer, and our banner. Let's dive in. I'm not going to necessarily go in the chapter order. I'm going by the character order here. So first, we're going to look at God as our covenant-keeping creator, our Father in heaven. We've seen that God is in full control of all the forces, capacities, and inhabitants of the created world. That's from the Mottner commentary. He's been sustaining these people for 400 years, over 400 years, and multiplying them into a great nation, despite attempts by Pharaoh and his gods to destroy them, even though God hasn't been saying anything until he at last appeared to Moses, another new Adam like Noah. We saw his supreme control of nature in the plagues, and now we're going to see it again in the crossing of the Red Sea. These are scenes of decreation that will be turned to recreation, which means redemption and restoration. So we see the people have left Egypt. God has taken them directly. I put a map on the back of your uh, handout there. He's taken them north at first, which is the quickest way to get into the promised land. But then God says toward the end of 13, Well, but if we go that way, they're going to encounter the Philistines. That's not a good plan. They're not ready to be an army. So Moses, tell them to turn back. They're like, okay. We turn back and go and camp in front of the Red Sea. Okay. So everything is fine and good until God begins to work sovereignly over the human hearts. By God's grace, he's been working in Moses's heart, through whom he would deliver his people, and now he's using Pharaoh's heart and the hearts of his people once again, the evil that is in them, to bring honor and fame to his great name. Hallowed be thy name. People see the Egyptian forces, and of course they they panic. They're in fear, what are we, did you leave us out, lead us out here to to die? Didn't we tell you this before? What's gonna happen? And Moses says, stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, right? And so then God commands Moses to overnight hold out his staff over the sea. The creator parts the chaos waters of the sea, dries out that land, in in chapter 14, the dry land, I don't know if you observed, is used at least four times. Dry land, dry land, dry land. And the people then through the night, apparently it's night, it's kind of hard to tell. I think they're walking through the night because they've got the pillar of fire to light their way. And then the morning comes, they're out on the other side, the pillar lifts and the Egyptians are like, oh my gosh, they've gone across. So they start chasing through and what happens? their wheels get stuck in the mud the dry land has turned to mud apparently and they can't move they get stuck and then Moses holds his staff up again God's staff and the sea closes over them and the Egyptians that the people had feared they will see no more and finally then they are you know, rejoicing and believing. Y'all, Jesus' baptism is also a reenactment of this through the chaos waters of death into a wilderness of new life and testing. And then his death is explicitly referred to on the Mount of Transfiguration as his exodus. So here we see, the people see, that Yahweh, the Lord is the most high God and king over all creatures, divine and earthly. We saw in 1212 that he was going to judge the Egyptian gods. And in 1511, we'll talk about in a couple minutes, that there is no one like him, no no other God like him. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In his book, The Unseen Realm, which I've commended to you before, I highly commend to you again. He says, Egyptian theology linked Pharaoh and Egypt's pantheon of gods, period, linked Pharaoh and Egypt's pantheon of gods. From the fourth dynasty onward, Egypt, in Egypt, Pharaoh was considered the son of the high god Re, or Re. He was, he was to borrow the biblical expression, Re's image on earth the maintainer of the cosmic order established by Re and his pantheon at their creation. Now we know better. This has been a showdown, not between Israel and Egypt, but between rebellious divine imagers of God who have led Egyptians to worship them, and the one true God who actually created them and alone is worthy of worship. We see now Yahweh beginning to reclaim the nations after scattering them at the Tower of Babel. All right, now we're going to look at God as deliverer and redeemer, deliver us from evil. So chapter 13 continues with instructions about how to memorialize the Passover and Exodus from Egypt. In 12, Moses passed along instructions from God about the lamb, what they're to do before the event. And here he's giving more. The consecration of the firstborn. Uh, Megan mentioned this uh, last week. There's there's a word in uh, 1313, Pada, is the Hebrew word. In your ESV translation, it says redeem, but it actually should be translated ransom. So a ransom is something pay, paid in exchange for, like, if you're kidnapped, you pay a ransom to keep the you know kidnappers from killing whatever and then there's redeem gaal which we see in chapter six and we're going to see it again in uh chapter 15 but this ransom is what gives the idea of substitution as megan was saying this is where god begins to reveal substitution right the lamb is being substituted for the firstborn forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors And then there's the feast of unleavened bread. I won't go into this either because Megan uh, mentioned it as well. The leaven, actually, the meaning of leaven doesn't get explained in the Old Testament. It takes Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, 7 and 8. Well, I'm starting with 6. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? (coughs) Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The old has passed away, new things have come. All right, so then jumping back to the, the deliverance and then the final destruction of Pharaoh's army, the people believe God, they believe Moses and they break out in this incredible worship song, a magnificent worship song. As uh, Tim Mackey of Bible Projects often says in the pie, listen to the podcast, he says, this is something you need to grab a cup of tea, and you sit down and read and just ponder this. So I don't have time to go into all of this song. It's a magnificent song of praise to the Lord, and it gets used again, lines get used again and again and again throughout scripture. So Blackburn in his commentary says, now for the first time Israel herself proclaims, the Lord is his name. In verse 3. God had told them back in chapter 6 that he would bring them out, he would deliver them, he would redeem them. Finally, they believe it. At least for a couple of days. <laughs> So now they know that Yavad, their God, is supreme over all other gods. Verse 11 of chapter 50. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Y'all, that would be an empty comparison if these gods were imaginary, like SpongeBob SquarePants. Barney the purple dinosaur, Kermit the frog. These are real beings in rebellion against God and enemies of God's people. This comes out for us dramatically in the New Testament as Jesus encounters demons and as Paul tells us that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is still true today. Just because we're Western materialists doesn't mean the spiritual realm does not exist and is not still fighting against us and God and is not our enemy. It is evident everywhere you see oppression, injustice, immorality, killing, greed. So this God, their God, is going to take them into the land he promised to their ancestors. This is toward the end of the song. And along the way, the other nations they encounter will be in fear and awe of him who delivered them. Why is it so important to memorialize these events? because it links future generations to the story. It is participation through commemoration unto obedience. By remembering and reenacting the events, succeeding generations participate in them. (laughs) Baptism and communion for us is our participation in these events, making us one with the people of God throughout time and space. I have um, at the end of your, on the back of your handout the end is a quote uh, that I won't have time to read about participation from Norm, Norman Weirsba's book, it's really incredible. Now, next, God as the provider and sustainer. So. We've already seen him provide for his people by inclining the hearts of the Egyptians toward them when they asked for articles of silver and gold and clothing. He was planning ahead to have his artists build a tabernacle with all the accoutrements. Of course, they're going to take some of that and misuse it, aren't they? We're going to see that shortly. But y'all, they didn't expect hardship after such a spectacular deliverance. Oh, we're going to be living the high life now, right? <laughs> but then we see in 163 and again in 173, there's no water. What, what are you trying to kill us? There's no food. Did you leave us out here to lead us out here to starve to death? <laughs> so they move along and they come to a place called Mara, which means bitter. And the only water, it's like three days later, they're, they're like running low on provisions. There's water there, but they can't drink it. It's bitter. But God can make bitter things sweet. He tells Moses, look, see that tree over there that God planted there who knows how long before? Throw that into the water, and the water will be made sweet. And then it says, In 26 of of 15, he he issues the the first test. It's a little commandment, a little statute. Uh, He wants them to learn to follow him, to trust him, to listen to his voice. He's preparing them to switch their loyalties to him, their new sovereign. And they drink the sweet water. Then he moves them on to another place that has an oasis with 12 springs and 70 date palms. 12, 70. We see those numbers a lot. Those those come up again and again. All right. Then he moves them on again. And they're getting hungry. So God is going to provide here food and rest. Give us this day our daily bread. It's another test, it says. He's going to test them to see if they would trust him. So they learn that they're to go out every day and collect so much. And as it turns out, he who collected much didn't have too much. And he who collected little didn't have too little. It was amazing. But there wasn't going to be any on the seventh day. On the seventh day, you're not supposed to gather. You're supposed to rest. There's going to be enough on the sixth day for the seventh. So don't go out. And don't leave any each day. I'm gonna give it to you each day. Because if you leave it, it's gonna turn moldy. You gotta trust me for your daily bread. And of course, some of them don't. They leave bread that becomes moldy and they go out on the seventh day. Whoops, there's there's not any. Deuteronomy 8, which I guess Brian will maybe get to next week, or did he already? do no, I think next week maybe. It was to teach them that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Six days to work for your daily food, a day of rest. That's God's rhythm, and it's a gift to humans. And He wants humans to imitate them in this rhythm. Rhythm. They haven't had this story written down for them yet. They don't know. It, he's, so he's, re, he's reteaching them, bringing it back. Of course, then we learn I think Nancy goes into this in, in great detail. It's really, really good that Jesus is the true bread that comes down from heaven, and then eating him, we become like him. This is another place where that quote from Norman Weirs book really comes in. All right, then he moves them on again, a little farther south, more towards Mount Sinai. And there's no water again. They're thirsty. This time it says, the people put God to the test. And then he has Moses go to the rock with the staff of God and God is standing there, it says, on the rock and Moses strikes the rock and the water pours out for them. Desmond Alexander in his Exodus commentary says, while it is appropriate for God to test the Israelites' obedience, it is clearly inappropriate for them to test the Lord's faithfulness. By testing the Lord, the Israelites not only imply that he is less than perfect, but they also set themselves up as judges who are in some way superior to God. Y'all, at this point God is patient and kind with them. He knows they're new at this, but it's going to be more difficult for them as time goes on. And finally, we're going to see in the, in the last chapter, 17, God, well, actually, we're going, we're going to kind of skip around. Because the healer is a name that God gives to himself in, at the end of chapter 15. And then banner is the title, the name that God gives himself at the end of, of 17. So healing at the Mara test can mean recovery from physical issues, but it is also metaphorically used to refer to restoration from obstacles and setbacks. It doesn't always mean physical healing. Blessing comes with obedience. If humans want to act like the evil realm, then the curses meted out upon the evil realm will come upon humans. It's not God's intention for humans this is going to be brought up again at the end of Deuteronomy with those lists of blessings and curses and then God gives himself the name God is my banner he is the warrior king leading in to the future God has already delivered the people without any participation on their part from the oppression of the Egyptians and their gods. Now he is promising to defeat their enemies, sometimes with their participation. They fight the Amalekites as they move forward to their inheritance where he will dwell with them. Yahweh shall reign forever and ever. Chapter 15, 18, the end of the psalm some takeaways for you that spoke the most for me. Mottier introduces uh, his chapter about this in his commentary. It says, walking with God is no primrose path. Isn't that the truth? Don't you know that? You think you're on the right path, following God's will as best you can discern it, and life is a mess. It's a struggle. It's a wrestling match. You're being oppressed by a tyrant who's trying to work you to death and kill your children, but God's there watching, sustaining, providing, working out his purposes that you aren't privy to. Have faith, he's worthy of your trust. And then Trust and Obey. I grew up Baptist and Trust and Obey, that old hymn, was just one of, my, one of my favorites. It's because I think those are really hard for me. God is the creator. We are his creatures. He knows all things, including our hearts. We have limited knowledge and must trust him. That was his call to Adam and Eve. In trusting God through all the challenges of our life, our faith is proved genuine. And we move on to maturity that we might be made into Christ's likeness and flourish as God's earthly images created to rule and reign with him. This is the story you are a part of. I am a part of. If you're having a hard time believing that, I want to encourage you to write down this affirmation and say it to yourself several times a day. I have it up on an index card on my mirror, taped to my mirror. I'll say it a few times. I am, fill in your name, I am Lisa in whom God dwells and delights and I live in an unshakable kingdom. I am Lisa in whom God dwells and delights and I live in an unshakable kingdom. I am Miranda. I am Lauren. I am Courtney in whom God dwells and delights and I live in an unshakable kingdom for yours alone for the kingdom and the power and the glory now and forevermore